0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for December 14th. I'm Brian Carlisle. In 2011, the Department of Education issued new guidance as to how schools should handle accusations of sexual assault in order to remain compliant with Title IX and ensure equal access to education regardless of sex. The guidance responded to what the department viewed as a ubiquitous and pernicious phenomenon incidents of campus sexual assault being often swept under the rug by schools inclined to avoid such reputation-diminishing investigations. The guidelines were designed to bolster protections for victims alleging assault and thereby encourage them to come forward. Cross-examination of accusers was discouraged. The definition of what counts as sexual assault was broadened, and the required burden of proof was lowered to a preponderance of the evidence standard, the 50% plus one approach often used in civil courts under which accused students are punished, in many cases by expulsion, where school's adjudicatory body finds an alleged assault more likely than not occurred. The necessary result of bolstered accuser protections critics of the guidance argued then and since is diminished rights for the accused. And as California universities adopted practices in line with the 2011 guidance, state appellate courts have on several occasions now, including this past Tuesday, echoed that same concern, finding adjudication procedures at schools like USC, Claremont, and UCSB as lacking sufficient due process protections for those accused of sexual assault. That puts California courts in an atypically harmonious posture with the Trump administration, whose Department of Education, headed by Betsy DeVos, is set to recalibrate Title IX sexual assault compliance rules in such a way that appreciably strengthens the rights of the accused who, under the rules, would have a greater ability to cross-examine accusers and other adverse witnesses. The accused would have greater access to inculpatory evidence and would be afforded a more formal trial-like hearing. The proposals have elicited strong rebuke for many quarters. Victims' rights advocates say the changes will affect a status quo ante, where assaults go unreported and overlooked, the situation that prompted the 2011 guidance in the first place. Supporters of the new rules say they are necessary to ensure accused students are not subjected to abstruse, Kafka-like procedures that can yield devastating punishments. Today, we'll be joined by two guests with some contrasting views on all of this. First, we'll hear from Professor Laura Bazelon from the University of San Francisco School of Law, who generally supports the proposed changes, though with certain reservations. From her vantage as a former public defender and as someone who advises university students facing sexual assault claims, she says heightened protections for accused students are needed in part because the disparate treatment and pernicious inferences she saw plague her African-American clients at the PD's office likewise can menace minority students facing campus discipline. Also, she says that anyone facing such serious allegations and substantial punishment should be afforded some measure of a presumption of innocence, something the preponderance of the evidence standard does not provide. Then, we'll hear from Kelly Woodruff. She's counsel with the California Appellate Law Group and is generally supportive of the level of due process California universities have provided accused students. She says a preponderance of the evidence standard is fair since accused students are not in a criminal court facing potential prison time. And she'll explain why certain of the proposed rule changes, in particular a guaranteed right to cross-examination, will inexorably deter victims of sexual assault from reporting and thereby deny them justice. Ms. Woodruff will also describe what she says is a troubling phenomenon, she's noticed in the California Courts of Appeal's many reversals of campus sexual assault adjudications. Namely, she says those courts are applying a different due process standard than they apply in other campus discipline settings, like where a student is accused of cheating. And she says that differential approach implies that California's courts are less inclined to credit the accusations of students claiming assault than they are to, believe, say, teachers leveling cheating allegations. Before hearing from our guests, though, let me remind you, as always, that CLE credit is available for listeners of the podcast. It's very simple. Once you're done listening to the show, just find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. We really appreciate folks that take up that offer as it helps us continue to provide the show outside our paywall and free of charge. And now, it's time for our opening briefs. There's a bit of activity in the U.S. Supreme Court this week, one unanimous ruling issued in which the justices all agreed that the term burglary, as used in the Armed Career Criminal Act, applies to offenses perpetrated not only against buildings and traditional dwellings, but also against any vehicle that has been adapted or is customarily used for overnight accommodation. And the court granted review in one case, Kaiser v. Wilkie, which implicates au courant issues of administrative law and stare decisis. Here the question is whether the court should overrule a line of cases holding that courts should generally defer to agencies interpreting their own ambiguous regulations. And the court received a request Tuesday from the Trump administration to give effect to the president's November 9th proclamation barring asylum applications by anyone crossing the southern border outside of an official point of entry. A split Ninth Circuit opinion written by George W. Bush appointed Judge J. Bybee deemed last Friday that the proclamation infringed a clearly contrary congressional statute allowing potential asylees to present themselves anywhere along the border. In the Ninth Circuit, a couple of on banc arguments were heard. One revisits the constitutional question of whether immigrant children facing deportation are entitled to appointed counsel to help them decipher Byzantine immigration law and procedure. An earlier panel found the Constitution did not require a guaranteed appointed counsel in such circumstances, but several judges on Monday seemed inclined towards the possibility that, at least in certain cases involving, say, an especially young child, appointed counsel might be constitutionally required. An on-block panel also heard argument in a qualified immunity matter involving a Riverside man suing after being shot, From behind during a police pursuit, some unique procedural quirks seemed to bedevil the judges Monday, namely that the district court judge granted the qualified immunity dismissal sua sponte, and after seeming to weigh the evidence presented, and reach findings of fact despite the preliminary stage of the suit. And in a ruling Thursday, a split panel largely upheld a district court's ruling blocking the Trump administration from exempting certain employers from providing access to reproductive health care like birth control. Though the panel did limit the scope of the national injunction the lower court had issued confining it to just the five states that had jointly sued the administration. The crux of the state's claim was that the administration lacked good cause for bypassing the usual notice and comment period before adopting the rule changes at issue. In the California Supreme Court this week, three decisions were rendered. One upheld the legality of second meal break waivers for healthcare workers on 12-hour shifts. Another, pertaining to Proposition 47, held that for sentencing purposes, the value of a forged check is the amount actually appearing on the check rather than, as had been argued, the intrinsic value of the paper itself or the amount one might be able to get in return for it. And on Thursday, the high court affirmed that prosecutors may access otherwise confidential psych records when prosecuting civil commitment petitions against sexually violent predators. But the case this week providing the basis for today's program was a second district court of appeal opinion that once again deemed insufficient the level of due process at California University provided a student accused of sexual assault. It's one of a handful of such rulings that have come down since schools in the state revamped adjudicatory procedures attending assault claims in response to 2011 Department of Education guidance. Overall, the series of appellate decisions cohere around a common point that universities are not doing enough to ensure accused students get a fair process. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos thinks the same, prompting her to issue new proposed rules meant to bolster due process in this context. Our first guest, Professor Laura Bazelon, is an Associate Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Juvenile Justice Center and the Racial Justice Clinic at the University of San Francisco School of Law. She penned a provocative op-ed in the New York Times last week under the somewhat contrarian sounding headline, I'm a Democrat and a Feminist, and I support Betsy DeVos' Title IX reforms. She joins us now. Professor Bazelon, thanks for being on the program.
1: Thank you for having me
0: proposed a couple of weeks ago by the Department of Education, by the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, are changes, um, some proposed rules that would change the way schools adjudicate uh, claims of sexual harassment and sexual assault. These rule changes are described by the Secretary of Education as necessary measures to ensure proper due process is provided to accused students. And the secretary also describes them as, as necessary to sort of recalibrate the system in response to some changes that were, were or some, some different guidance that was given by the previous Department of Education under President Obama. Um, so let's start there. Most notably sort of in that Obama Department of Education era 2011 guidance letter was issued that sought to ensure that the rights of victims were vindicated in these sorts of adjudications. What were the changes that were made then or that were uh, suggested then?
1: So in 2011, the Office of Civil Rights, which is under the Department of Education, issued something called a Dear Colleague Letter or a DCL. And what it said was that sexual harassment and sexual assault on campus had been adjudicated in ways that were deeply problematic, in particular sort of sweeping the problem of sexual assault, and sexual harassment under the rug and leaving many victims without justice. And so these guidelines were an attempt to really write that scale. And what they did was suggest that colleges and universities use a preponderance of the evidence standard. So that's basically 5149 more likely than not to determine whether or not an accused person was responsible. Some schools have been using a higher standard of clear and convincing and even beyond a reasonable doubt. The DCL also talked about the fact that they didn't want schools to try to use mediation or really anything short of an adjudicative process. And within that process, they limited pretty sharply the right to any kind of cross-examination and they also allowed for a single investigator system, whereby one person would be designated to gather facts and evidence, and then also serve essentially as the prosecutor and the judge.
0: Okay, so as you say, those were guidelines that were issued. Uh, so not precise prescriptions that were mandated upon schools to follow, uh, but certainly encourage the schools to uh, to change their their approach. What were some of the more more common ways that in particular universities, responded in remediating their procedures. And I suppose, do you think to any extent that some of the schools may have kind of went further or maybe overcorrected in response to the Dear Colleague letter?
1: Well, let's start with the characterization of the Dear Colleague letter as guidance, not binding law. That is correct, but only in the most technical sense. So, the DCL did not go through a notice and comment period, and it's not part of the Code of Federal Regulations. However, what the letter said was that schools that were found to be out of compliance with the standards set forth in the DCL would be placed under federal investigation and threatened with the loss of federal funding. So because this DCL carried such a big stick, it had the de jure force of law. And in fact, hundreds of schools, between 2011 and the time that Obama left office were placed under federal investigation. To your question, whether schools went too far, I think that schools did what the DCL told them to do because maybe they were motivated out of providing due process to victims, one would hope, but also because they were fearful that they were going to be placed under investigation and lose access to federal funding. So, to your final question, was there an overcorrection? I personally believe that there was. It's not just my personal belief. It's the belief of many courts at this point. And did they overcorrect beyond what the guidelines allowed? No, they followed the guidelines. So in my view, it's the guidelines themselves that overcorrected. A serious problem, but nonetheless overcorrected.
0: Then you you write in your recent New York Times opinion article that you agree with the, at least part of the Department of Education's characterization that the those guidelines created a situation where due process protections to the accused are lacking. Um, many, or at least a handful of California courts of appeal have issued similar sorts of concerns in, in, in rulings overturning some campus discipline. Walk me through exactly how some of the 2011 guidelines and the procedures that follow them in a legal sense will diminish sufficient due process provided to uh, accused students?
1: Sure. So let's take the California State University system, which enrolls 485,000 or so students, half of whom are students of color. In the CSU system, under Title IX, as the way they adjudicate it, there is no hearing whatsoever, there is no right to cross-examination, and there is a single investigator system. So the clinic that I run, one of them at USF, we represent accused students, some of whom are in the CSU system, students of color. And one of our clients was accused by a white accuser of sexual assault. And essentially the investigation consisted of one investigator interviewing him, interviewing her, she offered no witnesses, interviewing several witnesses offered by our client, and then concluding, using preponderance of the evidence, that the accuser was more credible than our client, issuing a decision saying that, and that was the entire proceeding. He was at no point allowed to ask any questions. There was no kind of process other than a couple of interviews and her written conclusions, and that is typical of a CSU school. So, what you refer to are these recent spate of California Court of Appeal decisions, none of which involve CSU schools, all of which involve schools that provide more process than CSU. So, in all of these recent decisions, they had a hearing and at least some form of cross examination. And even in those cases, the California Courts of Appeal, in every single case, unanimously concluded that the proceedings were effectively shams because they so sharply limited the right to test the validity and the accuracy and the truth of the accusations.
0: The dynamics of of race as implicated in this issue, I feel like in in reading some of the coverage of it in the past few years, that issue hasn't necessarily been at the forefront. Why in your piece did you feel like it was necessary to, to draw some attention to the fact that there are more Layers here that maybe folks on the at first glance would think about it, and what I guess it really is the importance of the, the racial aspect that you've uh, described a bit here.
1: The issue of race in these proceedings deeply concerns me. The racial retaliation experience by our client was extreme and life threatening, um, and I don't think that he is the exception. My belief, and this is tricky because the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education, neither under Obama nor under Trump, collect data that break down these disciplinary proceedings by race. So again, it's my belief, is that these proceedings impact young men of color disproportionately. So why do I believe that if they're not collecting data? I believe it because the Office of Civil Rights and the Department of Education collect data in K-12 disciplinary cases. And that data shows that black children are three times as likely to be suspended or expelled for offenses versus white children. And actually, in some California school districts, it's six to one. So if you extrapolate from that data onto college campuses, you can imagine how it could be racially disproportionate. Then, of course, you look to our criminal justice system, where again, the way that black men are policed, criminalized, and punished is grossly disproportionate to their percentage of the overall population. And then finally, you look to the history of this country and the way that we over-sexualize black men, particularly when it comes to allegations of sexual assault coming from white women.
0: As you say, the statistics aren't necessarily parsed by the Office of Civil Rights by uh, race. But you did say, remind me in your article, one an example from, I think it was Colgate University, where more than half of the complaints of sexual assault were against folks of color, while roughly like 4% of the student population was African American. Is that right?
1: That is true. And that's right. And so in the limited cases where we do have data, as in the Colgate example, it's truly alarming. And there's also, I think, this real concerned just going back to what i said earlier about how we have historically treated black men and i don't have any reason to believe that we would be any more fair in this particular context than we would in any other
0: back to some of the judicial treatment of the the procedures that colleges have put in place in response to that dear colleague letter a kind of a spate i think four or five california court of appeals rulings have largely been in unison when it comes to concern over a lack of due process for the accused. What principally have been the, the qualms those courts have mentioned? Because in, in the, the letter, there's a bunch of different suggestions in terms of modifying procedures, in terms of lowering the standard of the proof, uh, of maybe discouraging cross-examination of uh, different methods of investigating, w- w- whether having a hearing or just an investigator. What has seemed to trip up the, the California courts most of all?
1: Well, in one recent case involving the University of California, Santa Barbara, the, the accusation was that the young man had fallen asleep in the same bed as a friend. And his girlfriend was actually in the room a couple of feet away, sitting on the couch the entire time. The woman who was in the bed claimed that while she was passed out in sort of in a half-conscious state, she was groped and, and assaulted by this young man. His girlfriend is adamant that she was there the whole time and so was a friend and that nothing untoward happened. They went to a hearing and there was an issue about whether the accuser who had been taking antidepressants was perhaps prone to hallucinating or having kind of a mind-altering effect based on the drugs. And he had wanted to be able to have a witness testify about the effects of this particular kind of drug. And the school refused to let that happen, even though that testimony could have been relevant to whether perhaps, you know, what she believed happened actually was the result perhaps of this drug that she was taking. And then when he tried to have his mother testify to to that fact, they blocked that testimony. The other thing they did was rely on this report, because the woman had reported to the hospital, that was one page that concluded that perhaps a sexual assault had occurred, but never introduced the report, was never provided the report, and instead relied on, I believe, an email or some hearsay from a police officer who was involved in the investigation. And the court essentially said they relied on a piece of evidence that they never turned over, and perhaps had never even seen themselves, and then didn't allow testimony that really might have impacted the decision because it would have gone to whether there was another explanation for why this young woman believed she had been assaulted when two eyewitnesses in the room were adamant that she had not. So that's an example of a school providing a hearing, which the California State University system never does. But the hearing is so flawed that courts look at the process and decide that the things that needed to be present, including some kind of mechanism for having all the relevant evidence and testing it, were absent. And so the hearing is, in a sense, a sham.
0: Above all, some remedies to what you say are flawed hearings you describe being, one, inability for an accused student to cross-examine the accuser. So in response to that proposal by, you know, it's included in the, in the Department of Education's proposed rules, you know, many, say, victims' rights advocates will say it is essentially tantamount to reliving a very traumatic experience for a victim to face questioning and potentially very explicit, maybe embarrassing or suggestive questioning from, okay, they won't come from the accuser, but his counsel, as the rule prescribes, but that could nonetheless be very traumatic. And as a function of that, it would discourage victims from coming forward with their their stories. How do you respond to, to those concerns?
1: Well, many schools do allow for a limited form of cross-examination. So for example, at University of California, San Diego, the accused can pose questions through the panel for the panel to ask. That's also true at Stanford. And I don't see any evidence to suggest that when you use that method of cross-examination, there is less reporting and that it silences victims. So this process would say, okay, we're not going to pose it through the panel. We're going to pose it through an advisor. And I understand the concerns that potentially things could go off the rails, which is why I think it's important in the notice and comment process to have reasonable suggestions about how to limit that so for example if the advisor became very aggressive or nasty or threatening then that person would be removed from the room i mean you can imagine situations where you could just impose certain restrictions and i'll also add that any advisor worth their salt wouldn't take that tack with someone who was an accuser anyway it's just not a good idea and no competent person would do that but in any event assuming that that was a risk There's ways to mitigate against the risk. And then the other thing I would say is they provide this other specific limitation, which is that the accuser doesn't have to be in the room. So the accuser can be in a different room participating by Zoom or Skype. They could be in a different country and you can set it up so that they are speaking into the camera and being seen, but not having to look at anyone else themselves.
0: Yeah, that. In particular, that sort of last attempt to find some perhaps creative way to at least get some measure of cross-examination to occur without uh, necessarily having the accuser anywhere nearby has been reiterated more than once by those California courts that have suggested, you know, hey, we we're open to you know however you want to do it, put up a wall, do it by video, but we just think that there is uh, some need for cross-examination. That also would occur, of course, at a hearing, which would mean under these new rules, the investigator model where there's a sort of single investigator finding um, all the evidence and then sort of adjudicating the case, it would no longer be uh, be permissible. You voiced some concern with that particular model. I guess what, on one hand, is, that, is wrong with having one person, uh, you know, presumably a seasoned and professional and uh, trained investigating these things and then adjudicating the necessary discipline. And then also, how would you respond to colleges that say, in response to rules mandating a hearing and sort of a a more trial like situation where there are more parties involved and more sort of neutral arbiters, uh, colleges saying that, hey, you know, we are not courts. We're institutes, institutes of higher learning. We don't really have the the resources to create a whole criminal court system within our, our campus, um, what are your thoughts on sort of those counterarguments to the requirement of a, of a hearing and, and not having this single investigator system?
1: Well, I'll take them one at a time. The single investigator system is one of the most problematic aspects of the current way that we adjudicate these cases. You say presumably well-trained, not in my experience. We are talking about people who don't actually have to have any real kind of particular training. I have seen bias and incompetence that would make your jaw drop. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that it's just problematic to have one person be the fact finder, the prosecutor, and the judge. I mean, just imagine if you were accused of something. That would be the last thing in the world that you would ever want, even assuming the person did have proper training. And in fact, the bias could go both ways. Why colleges complain that they're basically being turned into mini courtrooms That's fair enough, except that they have no choice. Title IX has been interpreted to apply to them. They have to keep their campuses free from sexual harassment and sexual assault. And the Due Process Clause tells them that they have to afford both parties some basic rights. So while it may be difficult and somewhat expensive, it's also their constitutional obligation. It's their statutory obligation. And I would say it's their moral obligation. Some of these people who are involved in these cases, in fact, most are never going to see the inside of a courtroom. And that's because some um, people who bring these accusations do not want to go to the police. Or if they do, the police and the prosecutors decide that it's just too murky and unclear to prove to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. And so it's really their only chance to get any form of justice. Then, when you look on the other side, you've got someone facing an accusation who is also at the same time upon a of finding of responsibility, facing what is effectively the end of their education? Because if you have been branded a Title IX, a campus sexual assault offender, no school is ever going to take you again.
0: Yeah, yeah that must be I hadn't really thought of until reading your article, but it is. It does seem very likely that that the sort of branding w- would stick with you. So even if you were expelled from one school. It, can imagine, it would be hard to uh, continue your education elsewhere, certainly. So let me toss you a few other counter-arguments related to some other of the proposed changes. One centering around the the heightened burden of proof that will be placed on an accuser. I've heard perhaps the the main counter-argument is that with the sort of current common standard, the preponderance of the evidence standard by which an accuser need only show it's more likely than not that the event's he or she describes happened happened, and that will um, result in discipline against the accused. Um, that, that sort of system sets it up so that the, the college is weighing equally the, the statements and the words and the testimony of sort of both sides, that they start with a sort of 50-50 scale and both parties say what they have to say and then you know, whichever way the tail scale tips, that's the, that's the outcome. Raising that standard to sort of a clear and convincing level could be interpreted as, as sort of presuming at first that the accused is innocent of what he's, he or she has been accused of and that the victim sort of has to carry that burden. And so I suppose the argument is that the statements of the victim are, are valued less that the victim sort of in that situation is, is presumed to not be, I mean, not telling the truth, but just has to sh- show above and beyond what the, the accused must show. Why do you think there is not a problem with the heightening the, the burden here?
1: Well, let's go back to first principle. So the proposed regulations from the Department of Education make it clear that there is no burden on
2: the accused.
1: I mean, excuse me, that there is no burden on the accuser whatsoever. The burden is on the school. That's where the burden is. And what the regulations do is recalibrate the situation. Because as you say right now, we're starting from the idea that we believe both of you until we don't believe one of you. That's not the way our system works when an accusation is brought. Our system works with a presumption of innocence, and the proposed regulations make it clear that the accused person is entitled to a presumption of innocence and will be presumed innocent unless and until the school shows by some amount of evidence and they allow preponderance or clear and convincing that the allegation is in fact supported. So I think we just need to make it clear where the burdens are. The victim doesn't carry a burden, the alleged victim, but the accused is entitled to be presumed innocent. And that's what the regulations say. And that is in line with the founding principles on which our country was based. So then we get to the question of, well, what level of proof is the appropriate level? And there is a lot of debate about this, which is presumably why the guidelines allow flexibility. And quite frankly, I don't think many schools are going to go up to clear and convincing. I think most of them are going to stay at a preponderance. But the question is really, is it right to find that one person sexually assaulted another person and the doubt as to whether you think that occurred is as high as 49 percent? knowing that the consequence of that finding is likely to be the end of the other person's education. So to me, given those outsized consequences, I think it is more appropriate to have a clear and convincing standard. I understand that perspectives on this issue may differ.
0: What's sort of the the, the response when folks will say, you know, the presumption of innocence is applicable in a criminal procedure setting in a criminal court. This is not criminal court. This is a college disciplinary forum. And I think other one of the things that sort of confounds the analysis is that even that being the case, this not being a criminal court, these adjudications not taking place in a criminal court, the accused conduct often is, you know, quintessentially a crime. So you sort of leap your mind to that framework of, okay, what sort of procedures attend criminal type settings? Even if here, you know, the argument is this is not a criminal court, this is not a criminal setting, so the presumption of innocence doesn't necessarily have to fit in here. What's your response there?
1: Well, my response is they are being accused of a crime. Groping, forced copulation, forceful intercourse, those are serious felony sexual assaults. And when you bring accusations that are that serious, which, again, have such outsized repercussions, I do believe that the person is entitled to the presumption of innocence. Yes, it is true that we are in an educational setting. And yes, it is true that if found responsible, the accused is not going to go to jail or to prison or be branded a felon. But some people would greatly prefer, for example, to go to court and be found guilty of drunk driving or petty theft or any number of low-level nonviolent felony or misdemeanors, because in fact, people who have that kind of record are welcome back in school and can complete their education. So I think it's really important to look at what kind of accusations these are, which are crimes, and the consequences.
0: A couple more proposed changes. One is that the definition of what counts as sexual assault will be narrowed. Uh, The 2011 guidance letter had, had broadened the definition of what you could describe as sexual assault now it's narrowed. And in some ways that, that seem problematic to many. I think one adjective that's included in, in the narrower definition is that the conduct complained of must be pervasive, which some have said would mean a single instance, even a very extreme one, a you know, proper sexual assault. If it occurred once, wouldn't be pervasive. So it wouldn't count as something that could be complained of under these Title IX uh, new proposals. And what do you say about the, the narrower definition prescribed by the D- Department of Education?
1: I'm critical of the narrow definition, too. I think it is too narrow for the reasons that you said, and I think it should be revised to be expanded and include more conduct that clearly is sexual assault and sexual harassment. And uh,
0: another change also is that in terms of when schools have to start to investigate these uh, sorts of claims, I think the new rules would only mandate it or punish schools if they didn't do it, if they had sort of... "Quote unquote actual knowledge—if the sort of the right person knew about claims—as opposed to the lower standard under the 2011 guidance that schools should act if they know or sort of should have known about these claims. What's your thought on on that shift in the the sort of knowledge requirement?
1: Right. So there's this really interesting chapter written by a professor named David Carp that's going to be published soon. That looks into the research and shows that since the DCL went into effect in 2011, the incidence of reporting has not increased. And of course, the DCL instituted a system whereby almost everyone is a mandated reporter who's in a teaching or administrative capacity. So I'm not sure that limiting it in the way that these regulations propose is going to cause a drop in reporting. But what I would say and what no one really talks about with these regulations is that they provide for the option of what they call supportive measures. In other words, what they're saying to people who are coming forward with allegations is you have a number of options here. If you want to go through a non-adversarial process, we can offer that to you. So we can offer you, for example, something like restorative justice, a no-contact order, counseling. Um, the DCL had forbidden anything short of a full-blown process. And I actually think that that may increase reporting because there are people to whom really bad things have happened and who have been assaulted or harassed who don't want the full-blown process for various reasons and might embrace other measures that are short of that, including the supportive measures outlined in the regulations.
0: Okay. Just a couple more to, to wrap up. You, in your New York Times piece, did say that the 2011 guidance was in response to real problems to too often school sweeping sexual assault instances under the rug. To what extent, uh, to any extent, do you worry that essentially revising wholesale those regulations uh, would result in sort of a status quo anti-situation where now the incentives are back realigned to where schools would be inclined to to be too lax in investigating these sorts of things?
1: I don't see that happening for a number of reasons. I think that we are in a moment in this country with Me Too and with greater and greater recognition of the way that women have been treated in various situations, including the workplace and intimate partner violence, that there is a community that wouldn't, stand for a return to a darker time where women were just dismissed out of hand. So I think given the changes that we've been through, and I'm not saying at it all, it's perfect, but the real convulsions starting with the revelations of the Me Too movement in 2016 have changed the landscape, and I don't see us going backward.
0: Okay, uh, just one last one then. In in that world, in the post-Weinstein era, in the, the Me Too era, you would see that in response to these regulations, proposed regulations, maybe some internecine rancor amongst parties that tend to agree, you count yourself firmly within the feminist and and Democrat camp. Most, I'd say, in those factions and those camps respond fairly negatively to Betsy DeVos's proposed changes. Um, I guess, why do you think it was important to in particular in this article, identify as a feminist and Democrat and also supportive of changes that many in those camps have decried?
1: I felt it was important because this issue has become so partisan and it's turned into red versus blue, whether you support Obama or whether you support Trump. And it shouldn't be about that. It should be about whether you support due process and racial justice. And so I thought it was important that that perspective be understood and that we not let these incredibly sharp, nasty political divisions blind us to the reality that what we are doing to some of these students doesn't even come close to justice. And that is why I wrote the piece the way that I did and why I felt compelled to write it, even though I knew that many people who I normally consider allies would be offended by it and angered by it. I just thought it was important to tell that truth.
0: Uh, Professor Laura Bazelon from University of San Francisco School of Law, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Kelly Woodruff is counsel for the California Appellate Law Group. In her view, certain of the Department of Education's proposed changes are ill guided, and moreover, Ms. Woodruff is concerned the California courts are taking, perhaps without even realizing it, an unduly heightened approach in their review of due process provisions and campus assault adjudications. She says that differential approach implies and reinforces some pernicious assumptions as to the credibility of sexual assault victims. She's here now. Ms. Woodruff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So uh, in a piece you contributed to our newspaper recently, you described what you referred to as a disturbing trend um, when it comes to the California appellate court's treatment of some of these campus sexual assault cases that have gotten up to that appellate court level. Namely, you say sort of the the magnifying glass, the the comb that those courts are using to to look through uh, a university's disciplinary procedures has been sort of more exacting when it comes to um, circumstances where the behavior at issue is accused sexual assault. And comparatively, you say that courts of appeal have used a less exacting due process standard when they're reviewing, say, instances of accused cheating. Um, What have you found?
2: Well, uh, what my article in the first place was the fact that two cases came down from the second district court of appeal in Los Angeles out of two different divisions, uh, but were both published the same day involving uh, two different instances of disciplinary actions taken in the university setting, um, one involving the University of Southern California and allegations of cheating and the other involving the University of California, Santa Barbara, UCSB involving sexual assault. And the fact in the cheating case, the, the evidence that was gathered against the accused in the cheating case seemed, um, thin at best compared to the evidence that had been gathered in the sexual assault case in Santa Barbara. And the procedure, the, the sort of process that the, accused student of, at, at USC, the student accused of cheating, was less exacting than the student accused of sexual assault in the UCSB case. And notwithstanding those differences, the two cases came out exactly opposite. So the USC court af- um, affirmed the discipline that was meted out to the alleged cheater at USC whereas the court in the UCSB case reversed the discipline that had been imposed against the alleged sexual assaulter. And I found that to be disturbing because I could not find any reason why there was a difference other than the substance of the alleged charges, one being sexual assault. And I think that that raises a lot of well, I think that that in itself raises a lot of issues, um, implied issues about accusers of sexual assault being less trustworthy, um, being less uh, honest, being um, uh, ill-motivated for whatever reason to make allegations. Um, and, you know, the converse, I suppose, of of saying that because faculty had accused the alleged cheater of cheating, that that was somehow... Um, more trustworthy and more likely to be be an accurate situation. And so somehow that student needed less opportunity to, for example, cross-examine witnesses or have access to evidence. And it struck me as as improper.
0: So I I, I take your point that there are some inferences you could draw by that sort of differential approach. Um, what of the idea that say, you know, courts might view sexual assault charges as, as more serious than cheating accusations and say, okay, we're going to take a closer look at whether um, the process by which this person was um, confirmed to having done the charged um, offense um, was, was all proper. What, why, why, I guess uh, it seems that courts often will apply different sorts of standards when they're reviewing different sorts of s- situations. Why is it a problem here?
2: Well, uh, first I would take issue with the fact that courts, apply different standards um, in different situations. Um, I think if if somebody, if this were a criminal court, a defendant charged with stealing a candy bar is afforded the same amount of process as a defendant charged with murder. It, it, I'm, I mean, I'm exaggerating a little bit because of the, the rights of appeal and things like that. But in other words, everybody is entitled in, a, in the criminal context to the right to counsel, the right to a jury trial, the right to have exculpatory evidence turned over by the district attorney, et cetera. The, the analysis of the procedural fairness of the hearing and the process is does not depend on the severity of the crime alleged. Um and, and furthermore, in the disciplinary context, in the in the non-sort of criminal university disciplinary context, in, in in both cases, the student was subject to very severe punishment. They were both suspended for a substantial. Uh, in the in the cases that I wrote about, were both suspended for a substantial um, period of time. The cheating case, the student was a senior who was in the process of a, of applying or hoping to go on to graduate school. And, um, and it, uh, potentially held him up from, from graduating. In addition to his suspension, he got an F in the class on his transcript. So I, I, I'm not sure that necessarily one is worse than the other. And uh, frankly, I think that the problem with assuming that an allegation of sexual assault is worse than an allegation of cheating sort of buys into the narrative that, um, that sexual assault Victims are falsely accusing their accusers, or that it's it's, it's somehow um, too easy to put put that stain on somebody's reputation um, because the the allegation of sexual assault is is so much worse. And I suppose if you were talking to the student who was. Um, suspended and got an F in a class in which he claims he did not cheat and had always been a, a, a high-achieving student. Then the impact of that on his entire rest of his life, because he now has an F on his transcript, and it, it may have made it more difficult, if not impossible, for him to get into graduate school, which then affected his career choices and his, you know, sort of lifelong learning. So I, I don't, I don't. Ascribe to the, to the premise that, that a sexual assault allegation is somehow worse than something severe as, as cheating in, in academia. Um, just by its nature, I I think the facts of any case are, can, can differ between the facts of any case. But I guess fundamentally, even if, even if a sexual assault allegation is somehow more of a stain on somebody's uh, lifelong reputation. Um, I, I, I still don't believe that there's any basis to have any heightened procedural requirements or looked at it looking at it from the victim's point of view, any heightened burdens to overcome, um, th- threshold issues to overcome to get justice in a sexual assault case versus uh, another type of
0: case. Did the ruling that came out this Tuesday from, again, the Second District Court of Appeal sort of confirm your your worry that courts are taking a, uh, an unnecessarily heightened level of scrutiny approach to these campus sexual assault cases?
2: Um, it confirmed it, and it worsened my suspicion because the case that came out on Tuesday was from the same division, Division 7 of the Second District, as the USC uh, cheating case that came down in September. And um, and in this case that came down on Tuesday, the evidence was, uh, there was a lot of undisputed evidence in the case that, that, that a sexual assault had occurred. So the facts of that case are that the trial court affirmed the university's um, expulsion of the student uh, in a Something like a 60 plus page written opinion after, you know, having a hearing and everything. And the Court of Appeal reversed that. So the, the Court of Appeal reversed the university's finding that was then upheld by a trial court. And the Court of Appeal said, still, we don't believe that this student got enough process um, because the uh, investigator relied on another investigator's interview notes of some witnesses. And there was some discrepancy in the evidence about whether or not there was uh, blood in the apartment versus paint, because apparently all these kids had gone to a paint party. And from my point of view, it was sort of irrelevant whether there was no blood at all or blood um, it may have gone to the, to the sort of severity of the assault, but there was no dispute that this particular victim was by far too inebriated to consent, that there was no dispute that um, the male student knew she was very, very, very drunk. She had um, difficulty getting them into her apartment. It was all on camera and she vomited and um, passed out that didn't even know the kid's name. Um, All of that was undisputed. And the fact that there were a few things such as the investigator relying on another investigators interview notes with no allegation that either the investigators was biased or incomplete, but just the fact that they didn't, that the investigator herself did not actually see put eyes on the, on some of the witnesses and to judge their credibility, um, was the thing that seems to trouble the court the most, um, And I found the whole opinion was very troubling to
0: me. Yeah, so that core concern, the fact that the ultimate arbiter did not physically see witnesses presenting testimony um, seemed to be a problem. That has been, I I think, mentioned previously as well by some courts of appeal that have handled these sorts of cases. Could you help me synthesize what the the main qualms in the California courts seem to be. I, I've noticed that there's that. There's also um, more than once it seemed that courts would reference the lack of an ability to cross-examine um, witnesses, uh, either victims or adverse witnesses, um, and certain concern also um, related to whether or not the accused was was given inculpatory evidence to sort of prepare um, a case. What, what, are, I guess, the, the main overarching concerns that you've noticed from the Courts of Appeal?
2: Well, um, <laughs> it's a good question because, again, I think that they're inconsistent. So in the Tuesday's case, um, which also involved USC, the, the concerns were, one, there was no live interview of by the ultimate decision maker, the ultimate arbit- arbiter of the facts, there was no live interview of the witnesses of three of the witnesses. There were other witnesses who she had live interviews with, but three of the witnesses were not interviewed live. So she was according to the court, not able to assess their credibility directly herself. And there was um, uh, the defendant, the accused, sorry, he's not a defendant. the accused was uh, unable to get access to the victim's, clothes. I believe she put her clothes in a bag and took them to the rape crisis center um, and her medical records from um, from the UCLA Medical Center at the time. There was, again, no dispute that uh, the university could not force her to, to turn that stuff over. It was all subject to HIPAA and privacy issues and things. But the bottom line is he didn't get it. Um and so that those two things seems to be the overarching concern for that court. But then I go back and say, well, this was the same court that in September found that John Doe, um, the alleged cheater at the same university did receive a fair hearing, um, notwithstanding that he was not allowed to cross examine the uh, faculty who prepared the report that alleged his cheating. Um, he was not per- permitted to um, introduce Evidence at his hearing regarding um, exculpatory evidence um, on, on, in his own defense, and he was expressly prohibited, or at least advised, um, that he was not even allowed to talk to the other student in advance to help prepare him for his uh, defense. Um, again, and in that case, the the, the facts were substantially more weak. There was no eyewitness um, testimony of any wrongdoing whatsoever. The entire allegation of cheating was based on a statistical analysis of two students' exams who were sitting next to each other. Um, but no other students, no faculty, no test monitors saw any wrongdoing, saw any peeking or talking or writing notes, nothing. It was all based on a statistical review of their their exams, and um, and he was not allowed to cross-examine the faculty who prepared that report, prepared that statistical exam. He wasn't allowed to talk to the other student, even to interview him, um, let alone cross-examine him. And <laughs> I, I don't know how the, the same exact court reconciles those two facts or if, situations. Uh,
0: um, just trying to parse out, I suppose, the, the core of your concern. Is it more that... The appellate courts are sort of asking too much of colleges in the specific context of the campus sexual assault adjudic- uh, adjudication proceedings, or is it more so that just the the review, the um, due process required by the courts of appeal in, in these instances have has just been been different than that that they've required than they've required in, as you say, that that cheating case.
2: I would say my concerns are are, are broader than the university setting at all, honestly. My concerns, the, the, the two cases that I wrote about, those cases were published right around the time of the, um, Judge, you now Justice Kavanaugh hearings. And, um, and then these two cases came, came out and I was struck once again by the fact that victims of sexual assault seemed to have to prove twice as much and go twice as far and provide and the courts have to provide twice as much process and procedural fairness to men accused of sexual assault than other victims of crime, of other types of crimes. And what that says about the court's treatment and, and view of women in general and sexual assault victims in particular. Um, I find it ex- extremely troubling, honestly. And I, I think that there's an implicit belief that it is not uncommon for women to make up sexual assault allegations. Um, and I don't know that there's any statistical support for that whatsoever. I'm also frankly concerned, um, about the impact it has on young women or, or all victims of sexual assault about the, um, Willingness to come forward and make an allegation at all and uh, knowing how difficult it is going to be on them and their life to have to do that, then only to see that, in fact, nothing happens, And I think that that is uh, a huge deterrent to women to report sexual assault in the first place, particularly on college campuses where they're going to have potentially have to be in classes with the same student or pass the student in the halls or see the student at parties or events um, over and over again.
0: Okay. Then with all that as, as context, let's turn to the proposed rules announced by the Department of Education. I mean, do you, they all um, are of a piece striving or asserting the need to, to bolster due process protections for accused students. Um, what is your sort of overall reaction to To the rules that were announced. And I suppose, do you think that that sort of overarching theory, that purpose, draws some of the inferences, the pernicious inferences that you have been suggesting um, are are problematic?
2: I I do. Um, Again, I should say that I'm not opposed to some overall increase in the level of process that students in college, university disciplinary, settings receive, um, whether it's the right to cross-examination or a heightened burden of proof. I do not fundamentally believe that students accused of any sort of wrongdoing in the university setting um, require or deserve the same levels of due process protection that are guaranteed in a criminal context, and that is because attending the university is a privilege. And if you uh, take advantage of that privilege or violate the rules um, and the privilege gets taken away from you, then, then so be it. There's, there's um, quite a, a, a difference between having your, your liberty restrained or removed completely um, and impacts on your life going forward. For example, in the many states, felons can't, can never vote again. They become disenfranchised. So all of those sorts of attendant circumstances, um, a, a criminal context is is much worse. So that being said, I I am not opposed to the idea behind the the proposed new rules of having some heightened levels of procedure that allows um, for uh, more opportunity for a, for an accused student to defend himself or herself. Um, that being said i back to being troubled by the fact that these proposed rules would apply to gender-based cases, so, cases involving sexual assault and not cases involving cheating. And that this will now codify essentially heightened levels of procedure and looking at it from the victim's point of view, additional hurdles that that victim will have to overcome or uh, put herself through, in terms of being cross examined, for example, um, before getting any justice. And that's
0: helpful. Yeah. That, that particular point, that last one, the availability for, for cross examination has, has come up, as we said, a lot in the California courts' treatment of this issue and, and certainly is a one of the centerpieces of the new rule proposals. Um, you know, what. <laughs> It just seems like a really tricky question because folks will argue that that is the best way to get to the truth. Uh, Certainly in the Constitution, if you're accused of a crime, and I know this is not a criminal context, you are guaranteed the right to confront those who are accusing you of that offense. But on the other hand, folks will argue that requiring a victim of sexual assault to present testimony and and, and, um, be the subject of adverse questioning essentially requires that person to relive a very traumatic experience. So what are your thoughts on the argument over whether or not there should be some sort of guarantee uh, of cross-examination in whatever form.
2: I, I do not think that um, requiring universities to provide the opportunity for cross-examination is just or fair to the victim. Um, and I think that it will absolutely hinder and, and, dampen the willingness of victims to come forward, victims of sexual assaults to come forward in the first place, because they don't want to be put through that. And in terms of coming to, um, a, a, finding of truth, uh, what I would not be opposed to is having, I believe in the proposed rules would be a requirement that an invest, the investigator not also be the decision maker, the arbiter of, of the truth, the facts, um, and so having an investigator do the investigation and present those facts to um, the ultimate decision maker, including interviewing the victim uh, privately and probing him or her with, with, um, with questions to, to ascertain the truth and presenting that information with any of its flaws, its inconsistencies to the decision maker to, to decide. But the concept of cross-examination, uh, you know, as, as a, as a lawyer who I, I currently only do a, appeals, but <laughs> I spent the vast majority of my career doing both trials and appeals and cross-examination is, um, is, is designed to trip people up, really. I mean, at least that was my goal as a trial attorney is you cross-examine, you try, you, you, you try to get them to say something that hurts them, you try to get them to say something that's inconsistent, you bring up um, other instances that are unrelated to try to show that they're not a truthful person. And I don't think that that has any place at all in a disciplinary, a university disciplinary proceeding. The, if, and if accused, if a student is accused of sexual assault, there, and, and there is some discipline that results out of it because there's an investigation that their chances are there will also be a criminal proceeding. You know, there may or may not be, but there could be, at which point the accused will have every opportunity to cross examine witnesses. Um, but again, in, in the university setting, going to university is a privilege and, um, you know, having an accurate truth-finding process I'm in support of for all allegations of wrongdoing, including cheating and drunken public or whatever, the various uh, student discipline actions that take place that don't make the the news or the court papers, um, which I'm sure happen all the time. There should be a, a, a sure way of thoroughly investigating and, you know, interviewing both sides and and giving the accused the opportunity to present any and all evidence in his or her defense, I, I am for those. But I, I do not believe that requiring a victim of sexual abuse to sit through cross examination in the university setting is appropriate.
0: Okay, maybe just uh, one one last one in reference to the suggested um, heightening of the burden of proof required to a clear and convincing evidence standard. You said you're not necessarily opposed to heightening that standard of of evidence required so long as it's sort of consistent across all sorts of um, campus disciplinary procedures. Um, But I take that to mean you also do not think setting the bar at the preponderance of the evidence standard is unfair to the accused. Um, What of, say, the concern that folks will say, you know, this standard is just simply too low, it means that if the campus body finds it's 51% likely that this particular Offense occurred, they can expel the student, which means they might think there's a 49% chance it, it didn't happen, but nonetheless, the the student would be suspended or you know expelled and have a very difficult time finding um, the possibility of enrolling in other schools. I guess, do you think that that preponderance of the evidence standard is okay in these sorts of situations, and, and why?
2: I do think it is fair because again, it's not a criminal context. You're not um, looking at depriving somebody of their liberty and uh, necessarily impacting the whole rest of their life. Um, they have plenty of opportunities to, to, to start over and, and, and do over. And I, and I equate it to the, think of a civil context where you have somebody who gets Sued for example, a, a car accident where it was unclear whose fault it was, um, but the damage to the plaintiff was in the millions of dollars, and the defendant gets sued because he only has insurance for a hundred thousand dollars, and so he's getting sued for three million dollars of damages, and he's poor and he can't find an attorney, and there won't be an attorney appointed because it's not a criminal case, it's a civil case. And then he loses and he gets a judgment against him for $3 million, which he can't pay because he doesn't have it. But the plaintiff then takes that judgment and garnishes wages and takes 10 percent of his wages every paycheck for the rest of his life. That can be that can happen and happens all the time with a 51 percent preponderance of the evidence standard. Um, so in the university context, disciplinary, if, if there's a, a a thorough investigation and a fair um, and neutral decision-making process that finds that the student violated the university's rules, um, that's, that it's more likely than not that that student violated certain parts of the code of conduct um, and then gets some discipline, I'm quite comfortable with that.
0: Okay. Well, uh, as we speak, these rules are under review, um, but we can leave it there for now. Kelly Woodruff from California Appellate Law Group, thanks very much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it.
2: All right. Thank you, Brian.
0: And that's a show for December 14th, 2018. Like to thank both of my guests, Professor Lara Bazelon and Ms. Kelly Woodruff. So I thank my production staff here, principally Nick Perez, and thanks to you as well for tuning in. It is tremendously appreciated. Do not forget that one hour of CLE credit can easily be yours if you find a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this program appears. I'm Brian Cardale. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.